she never let her values about those things get in the way of loving anyone, loving other people in the community, her grandchildren or nieces and nephews who didn't kind of fall in line with what she wanted. She really loved people and she never stopped loving them and supporting them and kind of helping the people that she knew navigate their way through what was a complicated world. And I really loved her for that. And I always thought, look, you know, it's, it's good to have values, but if those values get in the way of loving other people, then you got to change that. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. Friends, my guest this week is Lorraine Kim. She describes herself as someone who wears many hats. Professionally, she's a social worker who provides in-home counseling to homebound people through the Good Samaritan program of Catholic Charities. She's also a mom and a wife and an active member of St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Urbana, Illinois. She's a quilter and she loves to read. A few weeks ago, we were comparing book recommendations in the parking lot outside of church. I work with Lorraine in her role as volunteer leader of the Church Peace and Justice Ministry. From her very earliest years, she grew up with a strong heart for loving people and has carried that out in learning and actions around anti-racism, immigration, and being an ally to LBGTQ people. When you hear our conversation, you'll notice how humble and measured she is, but underneath her passion comes through loud and clear. I really enjoyed her insight on how to fold a striving for justice into everyday life in a real and concrete way. And we talk about the challenges and transformation that come out of sitting in the tension and discomfort that comes from true work for justice. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I'm really pleased that you're joining us today, and I'm just so excited about our conversation. But before we really dive into everything, I kind of want to get a sense. uh, We know each other through St. Pat's, and I've heard a little bit of your story, but I'd just love to hear a little bit more about your story and your life and what led you to be where you are today? So I think that's kind of a hard question because our lives are all made up of stories and we often tell a story from a particular angle for a particular audience. So I'm not sure where to start with that, but I guess if this is a spiritual broadcast, we can start at my spiritual origins and For me, I feel really lucky to have grown up where I did. My uh, parents lived in the inner city. My dad built the house that we grew up in. It was kind of a barn raising. He was a farm boy and he married my mother who was a city girl. 
but he worked for her family's construction company. And to build their house, they just used all the leftover pieces of, you know, bricks and, you know, concrete blocks and different things that were lying around in the construction yard. And it was kind of a barn raising with family and friends and coworkers getting together after hours to build my parents' house. So it was a nice way to grow up in that environment. The, this was like in the 1958, something around there where my parents, they had a couple of kids by then and they had built this house. And shortly after that was the great migration. So we had African-American people moving from the South up to you know the North in different areas. And a lot of African-American people settled in my parents' neighborhood and a lot of white people left the neighborhood. There was kind of a steady stream of people exiting, you know, as I was growing up until my parents were visibly the only, or my parents, but our whole family was visibly the only family that was white in the neighborhood. And I bring this up because I feel like it was a huge part of my spiritual formation that, you know, occasionally someone would ask my dad, why didn't you leave? And he would say, why would I leave? My father was a man of very few words. He never gave a lecture. He never talked about racism. You know, he never did a formal education. He would say something like, why? And we as children would hear that and think, well, why? <laughs> you know, It was a process of educating by asking the right questions and making people a little uncomfortable with why they would think moving was the thing to do as well. So my father was a great guide because he gave us this terrific environment to grow up in and to learn about people in without saying very much at all. We went to this terrific, very spirit-filled parish in the neighborhood about five minutes from our house. Um, and it was a mixed uh, parish racially, but very dominated by the African-American culture, music, singing and dancing. And, and that was really a lovely, lovely place to grow up in. And when I was a little older, the, the school that we went to, I went to a Catholic school, but they had switched to a Montessori method that wasn't so good for me because I was way ahead in reading and way behind in math. So my mom switched me to another school about 15 minutes away. But it was a very white school and a white parish there. And we went to daily mass and stuff. And so I kind of went back and forth between these two worlds and saw different ways of worshiping and different ways of seeing the world and different comfort levels with talking about stuff, you know, talking about racism or poverty or, or sin even, you know. And so that was a terrific education for me. My mother was not at all like my dad. She was someone full of emotions, full of words. And she was someone who would make friends with strangers in the grocery store talking about, you know, how do you cook those greens? And she would have these conversations with people and they would be talking and laughing. And I was very shy and I would, you know, be standing beside her five or six years old and, and just in awe of her that she could engage with people that way. And even though I was shy, um, I was really interested in their stories and the stories and loving stories made me think at first that I wanted to be a writer. That was my first desire as a child. But when I got older, I realized that it was the real stories of real people that I liked. And so I went into social work because 
you know, you have access to people and their stories and because, you know, people who, who seek help, you know, from a social worker, I was a psychiatric social worker, they come kind of stripped of the normal facade or carapace that people have around them, the shell, and they open up and reveal to you kind of their inner workings. And I just loved that. I was so interested in that. And that's what made me, you know, love the work that I do and think that it's very much related to literature, you know, that connection, because I think that stories more than anything connect us to each other. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answered your question. But that's my like roundabout tangential answer. Yeah. What do you do now? Now I am several different things. My children point out that I have like at least three different jobs. I work as a senior counselor in the Catholic Charities Good Samaritan program, and we provide counseling to seniors. My coworker does counseling in her office for people who are ambulatory, and I do counseling for people who are homebound. So I go into their homes and do counseling. And it's lovely because, you you know, you get to go into their homes, into their lives and hear their stories and help them, you know, kind of live a a fuller life. Mm -hmm. And I do find it spiritual, even though like the people that I work with are not necessarily Catholic or not necessarily even particularly spiritual. I feel like when people let you into their inner lives, that's always a sacred place. Mm hmm. And then, so you said that, and then I'm a mother. So I have children. I'm a wife. I take care of my mother-in-law. So I have, you know, a bunch of different hats that I wear and I try to balance all those things. And sometimes those things can be careers in and of themselves, being a mother and a wife and Absolutely. a organizer of the home and, and everything mm-hmm. else. So you grew up in a more of an inner city environment. What brought you to this area and settled in the Champaign-Urbana area? Well, basically I got married and followed my husband around, you know, during his education and, you know, training and in jobs. And, you know, eventually we kind of settled back from into, we were in Seattle for a while that we settled back in the Midwest, a combination of his desire for a different job and for me to not be too far from my parents who were in Kansas city. Mm. Um, So we settled in Champaign and raised all of our kids here. So we really have enjoyed Champaign. It has more diversity and more interest than many towns its size because of the university, I think, but it's still a small town, you know, you know, you could run into people, you know, all across town and it's kind of nice. Yeah, it is nice. Are you part of a parish community? Well, you're part of the St. Pat's community because that's how we know each other. But have you been part of that community for a long time? And what has been your involvement with that parish community here? Well, we wanted our kids to go to Catholic schools when we first moved here. So initially we joined Holy Cross. But Holy Cross is a much more, I guess, it's kind of conservative in its worship style. And in the mass itself, like everyone's children were like well-behaved and mine were like squirmy and itchy and poking each other and running their cars up the back of the pews and fighting with each other. And it it was an act of suffering for me to take my children. Um, (laughs) I I I was offering my suffering to God every week, taking my four squirmy kids to mass and like suffering under like the glares of all the people who's like, can't you control your children? One of my son's fourth grade teacher took me aside and she said, you know, she says, I think you might really like St. Patrick's. She went to church there. 
we did that. We switched and tried St. Patrick's after about a year. I mean, the first day I went there was the first day Father Joe had just said mass. So it was his first day and we really liked it. You know, we went there and I think they had a mass where, you know, there was a second children's mass in the basement of the parish hall. And he would just stand there with a pool of like squirming, giggling children all around his feet. And I thought, this is it. (laughs) This is where we belong. Mm -hmm. So we never looked back. We really liked the spirit at St. Patrick's been a good parish for us. That's awesome. So you grew up within a Catholic parish with Catholic education and, and are still ingrained in your Catholic community. How has your personal spirituality evolved over the years? And what are some kind of more recent experiences in your life beyond childhood that have really helped you shape your current beliefs and views? Hmm. I think I hate to kind of answer the, not exactly the question you asked, but I, I think that the shaping really happened in my childhood. And I think it's just a further shaping. I think the most significant thing for me was when I was 15 years old and I was in Catholic high school at the time. I had a, you know, my dad was from the country. You know, we used to go into the country and my dad had a little kind of little tiny old house that he'd grown up in. And there was a stray dog that came there and she kind of became my dog because I was the only one who could touch her. And she had puppies and one puppy I, I was really attached to, but all the puppies got distemper. And they all had to be put down, but I I begged my dad to let this one dog live. And, but it got very sick and I had to choose to put the dog down. It was really a kind of my first experience with death and it was very hard. And I wore his dog tags, you know, when I went to school for a long time. And I assumed that the dog was in heaven. And, but I, I, I don't know what compelled me to, but there was a visiting nun at our high school. And I asked her, you know, do dogs go to heaven? And she said, no. (laughs) And I was just so hurt and so stunned by that answer. And I was very, very angry about it. And I was very angry at God. And I really like began this long daily kind of internal monologue of anger (laughs) to God. So I probably prayed more to God that year than any (laughs) year before or after, you know, And it was centered, my relationship with God was all centered on this anger and this about the injustice of it. And God hung in there (laughs) that whole time. But eventually at some point, I don't know when or why it happened, but like I thought, well, I'm right and God's wrong here. There's no question about it. But then I thought, well, wait a sec, do I, like, that's kind of a presumptuous thought. And do I really think that God is less merciful than I am? Or like not as nice a person as I am. (laughs) It kind of like shook me and I thought, well, then that nun must have been wrong. (laughs) Uh So for me, it was like an aha moment where I thought, wow, people in like religious authority could be wrong. And in fact, maybe I know better than they do. So I'm using that because I think that that has really helped form me as an adult to, to see people in religious authority and, you know, people that I respect, not necessarily as having every single answer and being the final answer. And that's helped me because the church is very flawed, you know, a lot of 
you know, there's a lot of sin in the church just like everywhere else. And it kept me from putting people on pedestals that they didn't need to be on, they maybe didn't want to be on either. And it protected my faith to, to see everybody as, as humans trying to figure it out and trying to be open to, to the love of God and the messages of God, the teachings of God and the call of God. And it helped me be less judgmental about things, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think that's continued as I've grown up, you know, and into an adult. Just that I've, you know, I don't know, I guess I've felt that the world was a more nuanced, more complicated place. And people saw different parts of, of the world based on their experiences. I mean, certainly that was true in my home parish. You know, I was a white person in a very black neighborhood and I couldn't have those same experiences, but I could kind of see what was going on, you know, and I could hear the stories about people's experiences of racism. I could see the poverty. I could see the unemployment, the frustration, you know, the grandmothers who cried and came into the front of the church to say a petition for their grandson who couldn't find work and, you know, had joined a gang and they were worried about them. And we saw poverty you know, and, and the systemic racism from a really different point of view. And, you know, and other people just didn't have that vantage point. I mean, I didn't have the full vantage point, but I mean, you know, everybody sees their experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's really a matter of listening to enough stories and kind of stepping back to get the full truth, which maybe none of us will ever get the full truth. Mm hmm. It's so interesting that you bring that up. I was, I read Richard, Father Richard Rohr's Mm -hmm. daily meditations, and he's from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Mm -hmm. And he talked actually this week was about the importance of experience and the, they call it the tricycle of scripture, tradition, and experience. And that Mm -hmm. experience is the first filter that you use to view your spirituality and even of the nature of God. And Mm -hmm. that's really interesting that you bring that up Mm -hmm. because I think we are very, very shaped by our experiences and our unique experiences. And they can, that experience can open us up or it Mm -hmm. can close us off, but it's kind of how we then use scripture and tradition to maybe validate our Mm. experience. Mm. Yeah. Because that can be dangerous too. You Mm -hmm. know, a lot of validating of what we think we already know, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then that kind of where, where is, what is the ultimate authority? Is it scripture? Is it tradition? Is it positional authority? Is it role? Mm. Is it your inner knowing? What should be your ultimate authority? Mm. Yeah. Those are some tough questions, Kelly. I know, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah That's it is tough. I'm all about tough questions. Mm-hmm. So if you could really sum up your spirituality kind of at this season in your life in one or two mm-hmm. sentences, what would it be? You know, I think that I think that God never stops talking to us. 
I don't think, you know, God was done, you know, at the time that the, the Bible was, you know, people wrote their last chapters of the Bible or, or the time when, you know, people chose which chapters to put in the Bible. I think God is constantly talking to us in one way or another through our senses, through the people around us. And it's just really a matter of listening or looking or opening yourself up to that. Sometimes I, I complain, God never shuts up. It's just constant, you know. Um, <laughs> But I also think that my sense of, of God is that God doesn't want us to let anything get in the way of loving people. I often tell people that this was the big lesson that my mother gave me is that, you know, she was, you know, she grew up in the fifties and, you know, she was a young woman in the fifties and she, you know, she had conservative ideas about how people should behave and, and ideas about, you know, the sanctity of marriage and sexuality but she never let her values about those things get in the way of loving anyone, loving other people in the community, her grandchildren or nieces and nephews who didn't kind of fall in line with what she wanted. She really loved people and she never stopped loving them and supporting them and kind of helping the people that she knew navigate their way through what was a complicated world. And I really loved her for that. And I always thought, look, you know, it's, it's good to have values, but if those values get in the way of loving other people, then you got to change that. So that's a great transition because I think I was first kind of introduced to you because you have started a ministry group at St. Pat's around LBGT plus and you've connected with an organization called Fortunate Families, which is a Catholic ministry group for queer people, their families, their friends, their allies. That's based out of Lexington, Kentucky. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that and your involvement and where that stems from and what that's all about? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess... Things sort of started for a few years ago, my family had moved up north a couple hours and I had joined a church there and met a very nice, very devout woman. We were involved in a, uh, an immigration program to help immigrants settling into the Chicago area. And but anyway, we got talking to each other and I found out that she had a gay son. And I have a gay son. And it was actually funny because there's the one of the immigration the program that we were involved in was called Exodus, Exodus something or other, but it was a program to help people who were leaving their country, you know, come to our country and settle in. But my son who'd heard it, he said, Exodus, like Exodus International. He says, that's like an anti-gay hate group. And I'm like, what? Oh, wow. And so sure enough, I, you know, Googled it and, you know, Exodus International was pretty much a conversion therapy group that had come apart. And, you know, they kind of said, no, no, actually conversion didn't work after all. But the fact that it had the same name was funny. And so I mentioned it to this woman when I met her, that the kind of irony that we're working with this excess group. And that's how I found out that she had a gay son as well. And we became good friends. And she was friends with the deacon there who had a lesbian daughter. And so the three of us really began this journey of kind of reading and educating ourselves and learning about the LGBTQ plus community within Catholicism, really. And we weren't really 
going anywhere necessarily except for our own edification. But eventually I think we wanted to like form some kind of group. So when Father James Martin's book came out, Building a Bridge, we used that book to have like a book study with a bunch of parishioners that they were aware of. We didn't have it on the site of the church, but, but we had it at the Catholic school, the high school. And it was very well attended. We had like 30 people come to it. But we were not allowed by the priest to have an LGBT plus ministry there. That was hard for us in different ways. So, you know, my friend, really, I felt like I could see when we were meeting with the priest that she was like closing the shutters and latching it. I mean, she was just closing in and was upset about that. And then the deacon was like writing lots and lots and lots of notes, kind of documenting the the thing. And I was trying to figure out, so if we can't have a ministry group, can we still do the stuff we want to do, but like under peace and justice? And I was still trying to figure it out how we could get this through, you know, which was the answer. Like we could do it as long as we weren't out in the open, you know, that's what that that (laughs) was saying. And that's a little bit ironic, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of symbolism in that, isn't there? But when we moved back, my family moved back to Champaign, which was a wonderful thing for all of us to be back here. Another parishioner had just finished up the program on Father James Martin's book, which was, you know, much more in-depth program at St. Patrick's. They had like a four-week study, which I participated in, and then a Skype presentation by Father James Martin. And 70 people came to that, very well attended. And we had a sign-up sheet, you know, is anyone interested in starting up a, a ministry group? And so about 20 people signed up, 25 people signed up, and and I was asked to be in charge of it. So we started meeting, you know, every month. You know, I, we didn't really quite know where we were going, but we just wanted to, like, start there and kind of see what developed and see where God wanted to take it. So, you know, we've done that. So we've been meeting since 2018, and it's been a really interesting experience. I think at the beginning, I sort of had this... Um, this idea that I was going to like create a safe place for people to be part of the church, you know, to reach out to LGBTQ plus people. And there was a little bit of this, like, you know, like when white people go out to help black people, there's a little bit of that. Like I'm a straight person. I'm going to extend my hand to welcome in non-straight people to my church. (laughs) And what I found out was that, the ministry happened the other way. Like all the, it was a ministry. They were, they ministered to me, I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. The people who came to the group and, you know, our group is, I would say more, or we have more family members of people who are gay than the actual LGBT plus people, but we're a mixed bag and, and mm-hmm. it changes over time as people move or, you know, go and come. And, but it's been, yeah, it's been interesting for me because I felt like I've grown as a person I think the whole question of identities and how people see themselves and how we can fully and truly be ourselves, which to me is fully and truly being what God uh, wants us to be and designed us to be. I think that's a very, very human desire and a human journey that we all take in one way or another. And so in reality, I think that running this group has been about my own personal journey more than anything else of who I am and what it means to be me, what it means to be Catholic, what it means to be a support to other people, you know, how it is that I can fold uh, striving for social justice into my life, 
in a kind of a real concrete way. Hmm. That's really beautiful fruits of that ministry and that experience. And it is, I think that when we're coming from a place of a majority identity, I think we do have to be careful that we're not centering ourselves in various Mm. different ways. And that's wonderful that you were able to stand in being humble enough to receive the gifts that other people who had that experience Mm. and had those identities could Mm. bring to you instead of I think what we we all go through this phase of like trying to save the world and be the yeah. social justice mm-hmm. champion and and in fact we end up doing more harm than good because we're centering ourselves and our needs <laughs> right. and not the people that we're trying to serve and understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know you don't learn unless you're out there making mistakes too. So well, exactly. You know, think, exactly. Yeah. And that's a mistake I think that needs I mean I think we get to all make that mistake. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. Because it's pretty natural and mm-hmm. it's part of our letting go of our ego, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and really letting God in instead of our own, mm-hmm. you know, flawed selves, yeah, yeah. self identities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was really impressed in the group sometimes, the people that I would meet who had been told by a priest um, that you can't. There's no way to reconcile who you are with your faith, that you can't be Catholic and be gay. And for them to have that experience and yet, and yet be Catholic and be gay and be a very spiritual person. <laughs> Lo and behold, what that person, that priest said to them, yeah, no, <laughs> it just, it wasn't in fact the case. And sometimes the spirituality of people would, I would be stunned by it and think, I don't have any business being the leader of this group when there's people with this kind of endurance and faith that, you know, keep on keeping on, you know, with their journey and not letting other people, you know, confine them. There's another person in the group who, you know, was told that they couldn't be a lector or Eucharistic minister because of their sexual orientation, you know, and, but remains, you know, a very devout person and, and doesn't try to, I, I don't know that I think it's necessarily the right decision because we all thought we're going to like, you know, we'll get up in arms for you <laughs> and get you those things as we think that you're a valuable member of the community. But they were like, no, no, no. I, they wanted the big picture. They wanted our group to to endure and thrive and to be a place for people to come to and, you know, didn't want to jeopardize that, I guess, that that was the bigger thing to them. So, you know, sometimes I think that everybody finds their way and it's not always the next person's way. You know, we've had this in our group where we wanted to go to the pride fest parade and some of us had gone, I think the year before, but we went before we were a ministry group. So we had just gone as proud Catholic allies. But when we became, you know, the LGBT group plus group of St. Patrick's Catholic church, we wanted to go as that we went to go as the St. Patrick's Patrick's group. And we had t-shirts and we had banners and stuff, but the priest didn't want us to march in the parade 
because he felt like it was connoted an approval of, you know, sex outside of marriage. But we really felt that the Pride Fest and the Pride Fest Parade was not about sex at all. It wasn't about people's behaviors. You know, it was just about validating who people are, that people are wonderfully made. And so there was like just an interpretation of what the definition of participating in it meant. But we were allowed to attend the parade on the sidelines with our T-shirts and everything. We had the choice of either doing that, coming, going with our St. Patrick's T-shirts and being on the side of the parade, or we could go as proud Catholic allies and be in the parade, but we couldn't bring St. Patrick's you know, a, a association along with us. And really it created a lot of strife in our group at the time because people felt like we were being asked to marginalize ourselves just as people in the LGBTQ plus community had been marginalized by everyone for so many years. And for them, it was a really huge symbolic kind of disrespect sort of, you know. The other part of the group really felt like we wanted to represent St. Pat's. We wanted to say that there's a place here. You can be Catholic and you can be gay and you can be part of our community, you know, an active and full part. And so there was conflict over that. And we voted and we voted to walk in the parade as, you know, the St. Patrick's LGBTQ plus people. No, 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 I mean, no, no, I'm sorry. We voted to go. We, we didn't have that choice. <laughs> we voted to attend on the sidelines, but as St. Patrick's. And then we, you know, at the priest's request, we wrote about our experiences and the people that we talked to and how much that moved us. And it was a very powerful experience. But I think that, you know, those of us who chose to go to do it that way, we're responding to how we could be a, a support. But I think also the people who, who said, no, that's like totally wrong. We're done with this. <laughs> we're not mm-hmm. going to do that. They're also responding to God's call to be on their journey where they need to be. Mm-hmm. So I think it doesn't always have to be the one way, just like my son left the church and I stayed in the church. And, you know, sometimes we change the world by staying and working within. And sometimes we change the world by walking away. They're both necessary sometimes. Hmm. Talk a little bit more about that tension between being in the church and being permissioned Mm. or running up against some of that authority uh, limitations and how people can live in that tension if they choose to stay within the church, either Mm -hmm. if they are of that identity, you know, if they Mm -hmm. are a queer identity or if they're a family member or an ally or just someone who has a passion around that. Yeah. I think that's exactly where it is, this tension. And I think just like in work against racism that we're, called to sit with in discomfort as we're learning about racism and so forth. We have to, in the LGBT group, I mean, it's a very different population, obviously, and a different problem, but we also have to sit and tolerate how much discomfort we can endure. I think for a lot of people who are LGBTQ+, I think that it's really hard to sit with that discomfort because it's a discomfort that's pointing right to the core of who you are, you know, and some people can stay in the church 
in the Catholic church is what, you know, what my experience is. So I guess I'll just talk about that. And some people can't. And I, I think that's, you know, you have, a person has to make that decision and, you know, family members who have been in our group, some people have chosen to leave and they've kind of written impassioned emails to me about supporting the work that we're doing, but they just can't do it. They can't stay. And I bless them and send them on their way because they need to find something that's nurturing to them. As a family member who's straight, I have the privilege and the ease of, of enduring more because it's not directly about me, you know. So I think that I have the strength to stick it out. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm choosing to do. And I want to carve a safe place for people. And I think that just like I, I you know, decided that it wasn't my like reaching out to, to welcome gay people, you know, as, as a straight person, you know, it wasn't that. And it's neither is it really about changing the church so much, but it's about kind of focusing on what I think is the real problem or the real issue is that my church needs to refocus itself on loving people and embracing them and bringing them closer to God, you know, embracing them in the arms of the church. I think that is the main task at hand here and the central thing that you know, needs to be focused on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it is a little bit of a unique challenge for those of us who are Catholic as opposed to other Christian denominations, because in many ways, I think being Catholic is also so much of a cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And so when people do choose to leave the church over this or any other issue, mm-hmm. you're cutting off a part of your identity. And it's not, I know people can move to a different denomination or or maybe mm-hmm. explore other aspects of spirituality, but we're sometimes asking people to, you know, choose which part of their identity they want to honor. And so if they are make that decision to leave, to me, I've seen such a grief and mourning and loss of losing their Catholic identity if they've chosen to leave. But then some people who have chosen to stay then have a mourning and loss of losing their mm-hmm. gender identity or their sexual identity, not sex acts, but their sexuality yeah. identity uh, if they choose to stay and stay within some of the limits or can't find a more accepting, loving place to be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's definitely a conundrum that might be a little bit unique to those who practice being Catholic. And some of it is, is how you look at the world too. Mm-hmm. You know, you had asked about my formation of my faith and told you the story about, you know, my dog dying and everything. But when I was in college, I was very active in the Newman Center, and there was a Mary Knoll missioner there who was kind of a youth counselor for people. And I remember her telling us one time that you are the church, you know, and we're like, we are the church. You're like in our, you know, 18, 20 year old or something, you know, we're like, we are the church. And we were all excited by that. And, but you know, that it's a very short sentence, but that stayed with me all these years that I am the church. Other people are the church too. We may not always see things eye to eye, but it doesn't mean that I'm not the church. To me, the church is not a hierarchy of people. It's not a bunch of buildings and stuff. It's the people within 
community of people who join together to worship God in, in that particular style of worship. So I guess I'm not bothered by, by all of that too much. That's a great perspective. So when you do kind of run into some of these issues that cause discomfort or you have to you deal with fatigue with dealing with some of these social justice issues, as many people do, hmm. what are some of the spiritual and self-care tools that you use to grow closer to God and to kind of renew yourself, refresh yourself, restore yourself and to be the most authentic person that you know God wants you to be. So I love to walk, and I love my dog, and I love my neighbor, who's my friend. And she and I take our dogs walking a lot. And it's very, very lovely to walk and to feel the wind on our faces and to be amongst nature. So I, I really feel healed when I'm in nature, of course, I mean, I'm just living in a neighborhood. So we're just walking around, you know, the houses. And <laughs> so it's not quite nature. If I can get a forest, I'm going to walk through a forest. But in the neighborhood, I have a friend. And I think friends are extremely healing. Talk about self-care. Sometimes, you know, I've been where I felt like I'm really tired. I don't know if it's like, you know, some kind of post-menopause or whatever, or, you know, am I low on blood sugar or something? And then a friend calls me and I'm like, I feel great. And I was just, I was just low on friendship. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think people are really powerful in that regard. I think sleep is great too. I think sitting with nothing to do is really great. <laughs> like I really like not having a super packed schedule because I think sometimes just sitting here or there, wherever that is, or just being is really important to self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did those things bring you closer to God? Oh, well, I think pretty easily. I mean, I think, you know, sitting just kind of gives God time to talk or me time to listen to God talking and, and to be aware of whatever I'm experiencing in my world that may be causing me stress to kind of pinpoint what exactly is it about that that's causing me stress because God's always asking me to change, you know? And so I have that, you know, that constant reflection about what it is that I need to change to get where I need to be, you know, to improve as a human being. But having a friend is just easier because you could just like vent and let it all out. And that person sometimes steps back and helps you get there. You know, they mm -hmm. give you a, a little step stool <laughs> to get where you need yeah. to be. So I just find that tremendously useful you know, to help narrow the focus or, you know, be less inundated by the so many different aspects of how, where I could take this journey and narrow it down to just a few choices so I could figure out where it is I need to work on next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One story um, I want to share with you, even though it's not uh, unrelated to some of these other things we've talked about is that, so years ago when we lived up North, there was a priest there that I met who, um, this is when Joey, I shouldn't say his son, this is when my son had decided to step away from the church. And I was really upset about that. I was really sad because I, you know, I really have an affection for my church and I was really worried about his relationship with God and his faith on ongoing or his faith going forward. 
And anyway, I met this priest. I was new to the parish and I was stressed and I just went in and talked with the, kind of the welcome person and just laid everything out on the table, kind of the shell of whatever that you put on in front of people. I just didn't bring that. I dressed like myself, you know, with my, I had like a skirt with little mirrors all over it, <laughs> you know, and my dangly <laughs> earrings as went as my totally myself. And I just kind of laid it all out. My frustration with, you know, Trump being president, which was a traumatic thing and living in this neighborhood that we had moved to, which was pretty racist. And, you know, we had so many things we were struggling with. Anyway, so she introduced me to this priest and, you know, you know, I just told him, I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all worried that my son has left the church. And, and he said, well, he said, you know, he says, he said, you just, you know, he was a, what kind of priest were they? They were, the church was St. Jude, but they were, they were Augustinians. They were an mm. order of Augustinians. And so St. Augustine had wandered around the world, not being a particularly devout person, but his mother, St. Monica had prayed for him for 30 years. So he tells me the story about St. Monica praying for St. Augustine for 30 years until he, you know, came back to God. And he said, when I was a, a teacher, he said, I taught high school at the Catholic school. And there was a boy that argued with me all the time. And this is an old Polish priest. This is important to the story. So he said, this kid argued with me all the time, but we had a good relationship. But, you know, he was, you know, he'd argue against the church and, it, you know, as a being, you know, as an institution. And he said, but he said, you know, I met him years and years later. He said he'd met and married a nice Polish girl and came around. So, <laughs> so he said, well, that might happen to your son. And I said, well, I don't think my son's going to meet a nice Polish girl because he's, he's gay. And without skipping a beat, he said, well, he might meet a nice Polish boy and he'll come back to the church. Yay. <laughs> I just thought, wow, he didn't skip a beat and came wow. back with that. I was really moved by that. He was an older man and I just loved him for that. And I thought, you know, this is my church. You know, this he's the church and he was certainly church to me that day. It gave me hope and gave me perspective you know, it was good. So I just yeah. want to say that because sometimes, you know, we, we look at the, the church as being a thumb on, you know, whatever we want to do, but sometimes it's just the opposite. You know, sometimes the representative of the church can really free you up. And yeah. there are tons and tons of people in the world, in the Catholic church, lay people, priests, bishops, whatever, who are very supportive and very loving and really know where it's at. Mm -hmm. And it's good to know that that's there too and recognize it. Yeah. And sometimes we get to focus on the positive instead of mm -hmm. dwelling on the negative and to see what's there right there in front of us. And that's a choice, right? That's a choice to be able to be open and hold on to those moments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. They're both true. They're yeah, both true. Both yes, true. exactly. Exactly. So I want to close like I do with many of my guests is I have all these just cool little rapid fire mm -hmm. questions that I ask just to get a little bit more of a snapshot of you as a person and kind of spirituality in your ordinary life, which is what this podcast is all about. So the first one, well, are you ready for the questions? Sure, Kelly. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> so the first one, something that people get wrong about you. 
So it's a little bit of a hard question. I, I, you know, you'd send it to me ahead of time, a few of these questions. And so I almost went to my kids to say, what do people get wrong about me? But, <laughs> but then I realized what it was. Sometimes people think I'm weak because I'm a pretty nice person and kind of easygoing. I don't like kind of get in people's faces and challenge them. But in fact, I'm not weak at all. I'm pretty strong. So it's kind of a, a little a secret <laughs> that mm-hmm. I have. That's awesome. Your superpower. And I found out that you like skirts with mirrors on them. So (laughs) So what's your favorite or most meaningful spiritual practice right now? So I really love Thich Nhat Hanh, who's written a lot of books on mindfulness. And, you know, years ago, I had read this passage where he talks about eating an orange while eating an orange, where, you know, you notice the color of the orange, the shape of the orange, the texture in your hands and the smell and the taste. And you're really present while you eat the orange. So you're present in the moment that you're alive. And I think that's really wonderful. And I've tried to live that in my life. So my favorite example of living this in my life is cleaning the cat vomit while cleaning the cat vomit. (laughs) So one day I'm like kneeling on the floor, I'm cleaning the cat vomit. I'm thinking, I'm going to be really present in this moment and, you know, feel the tile floor under my knees and the paper towel and doing this act. I'm sort of humbling myself on the floor to do a very humble act for a creature that I love. I found it very, very powerful. It's a little silly, my example, you know, but it really has been very helpful to me to live every moment instead of I got to get all these things done today. And then I'm going to sit down at the end of the day and watch a movie or I'm going to spend time with my husband or something. In fact, if I'm not spending every moment until then fully present and alive in those moments, you know, what's the point? Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like not delaying awareness of this moment that I'm alive. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Where do you see the divine or God? or whatever you're calling God right now, as most alive for you in this season? So I feel most of all that God is is pushing me and is present to me in this desire that I have and this attempt to implement some kind of movement in racial justice. So, you know, Kelly, you and I are trying to put together this educational program at our church for racial justice. And I I am finding that it's so much harder to live out these values than it is just to put a bumper sticker on my car (laughs) or other kinds of, you know, performative allyship that I've engaged in. It's different and much, much, much harder to actually do something. But God is just there. You know, God is all over that, helping me through that, the difficulty of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What's one thing in your life that might seem ordinary, but that is sacred to you? I think that's got to be my cup of coffee in the morning. (laughs) So, you know, I, I tend to get up a little early before other people do in the house and I go downstairs and I have my cup of coffee. Sometimes I light a candle, sometimes not, but I have this kind of quiet centering time where 
um, it's a, a bit mindful, you know, I'm just enjoying the cup of coffee, the taste and the warmth of it in my hands, the light coming through the window. So to me, that's, you know, that's pretty sacred time. And when the phone rings and there's kind of chaos during that time, I feel like I'm a little off because I haven't had that, that time in the daytime. And sometimes it's, it has active prayer, but a lot of times it's just sitting, you know, mm-hmm. sitting in the moment. Mm-hmm. What are you deeply grateful for right now? I'm deeply grateful for my husband. He's an awfully good man. I, I just like him a lot. <laughs> you know, he's, he's had a lot of strong ideas. I mean, that's why I fell in love with him. You know, we actually met at a, we were college students and we were forming a Missouri Association of Catholic College Students. And we went to a, a national convention and he stood up in front of a group of like 200 college kids and spoke off the cuff, but super eloquently. And I just looked at him and I, I'd met him many times before. I didn't think much of him. He just wasn't, you know, whatever, but he stood up and I thought, oh my gosh, he's got it. He's got vision. I want to follow him. And I was thinking about that the other day and I really love his way of seeing the world and his confidence in stepping out, you know, to do what he needs to do. But he's also funny and sweet and he knows me like the back of his hand. So I don't have to tell him that I'm bothered by something and he knows. And if I'm mad at him, he makes me laugh. And, you know, he's pretty special. Mm, That's really awesome. Name a book you would recommend to our audience. Oh, that's an easy one. I really love this book, Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad. So I've read a bunch of books about, you know, racism and white supremacy and white privilege and white fragility and stuff this year, but I really love her book. It's super spiritual and it's like a journaling style book where she gives you a little meditation. It's supposed to be meant to be done like over 28 days or something. There's a little short meditation in the book and then some questions for you to think about your childhood or going to school or different ways that you experienced like education about different races it kind of starts you at square one and makes it slowly kind of builds really easy to see the racial teachings that we experience in the world. And it's, it's meant for white people, you know, to get further along in the process, but I found it like so, so useful and good. And I think for use in like a, a, any kind of church or faith setting, I think it would be fantastic. The woman who wrote it is Muslim and she talks about her own spirituality and, that to do anti-racism work, you have to figure out when the going gets tough, what's gonna keep you going, whether that's a personal relationship with somebody or religious value that you have or wanting to be a good ancestor, which she talks about. And I, I thought it was just full of good things and really helped me grow as a person. Mm-hmm. And it's a very gentle book. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. like hit you over the head with mm-hmm. these concepts. It invites you into reflection. I've, I've really enjoyed that book as well. Yeah. And her, I'll definitely link to her website mm-hmm. and some of the resources, other resources she provides. I really have liked, have enjoyed her mm-hmm. guidance and virtual mentorship as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's just been it's just been wonderful to talk with you and to hear more about your thoughts and 
your perspective. And, and I really thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity, Kelly. It wasn't nearly as scary as I thought it might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm going to put that. That's going to go be on all my emails. It's not nearly as scary <laughs> as you think it's going to be. <laughs> but thank you. And thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table, and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.